Hello, wonderful listeners. This is Abla, and I'm coming to you from the Qualia podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to Miss Joanna Novak, who is well known for her writing in fiction, nonfiction, and prose. Miss Novak is the author of the novel I Must Have You and two previous books of poetry, Noirmania and Abeyance North America. Her debut memoir, Contradiction Days, will be published next year, and her third book of poetry, New Life, will be published this year, so be on the lookout for that. Ms. Novak's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and other publications. She is a co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook publisher, Tammy. Um, would you like to talk about it or like talk about how the process is going for you? For sure, yeah. Um, so I uh, am working on revisions for my memoir right now. It's called Contradiction Days, and it's a book about it's a book about finding oneself through finding out about another person. Um, so a couple of years ago, I got a grant to research the artist Agnes Martin. Agnes Martin was an abstract expressionist. Um, she lived from 1912 to 2004. And she's kind of famous for her reputation as a sort of a mystic um, at the height of her at what seemed like a, the height of her art career when she was living in New York. She left the city and stopped making art for four years when she moved to New Mexico and lived completely off the grid. She built her own like compound that she lived in completely like completely, uh, you know, no running water, no electricity, no telephone. And she took years and years off from painting um, when she'd been, like I said, receiving a lot of recognition um, and, and lived a kind of solitary, very simple existence. And Martin, then she began painting again and enjoyed a very, very successful career. Um, but she, um, it's thought that she left New York because of some of the distress that she was experiencing due to uh, the paranoid schizophrenia she was living with. And in New Mexico, and kind of by detaching from the sort of crowd of the city, there was a sort of way that she was able to like reclaim her, her process maybe and her, her access to her inspiration. And I was really interested, and so in her, in her in her career, she did a lot of actually writing and speech giving about inspiration, perfection, the search for beauty. And she has a really kind of positivist philosophy. And I found that so intriguing because so often I think our understanding of artists and mental illness is this kind of like tortured relationship. Mm -hmm. um, but Martin wasn't like that. And so I was really curious about her. And I got this grant to go research her to go spend some time in New Mexico. And I had this great plan. I was going to try to like live as much like her as I could. You know, I was going to try to like disconnect from the internet. I was going to try to, um, most of her paintings were six foot by six foot canvases. I was going to try to write these six inch by six inch text blocks. I was really going, and I was gonna read about her. I was going to go to the Harwood Museum in Taos where there's a whole wing devoted to her work. I was really, I was going to like live the Martin life. And, and I was going to be entirely alone, except I was going on this trip with my husband and my dog, and I was six months pregnant at the time. So it was sort of like a doomed mission. Um, but in, you know, in, in embarking on this doomed mission, I learned a lot about Agnes Martin, and I also learned, you know, I confronted a lot about my own history with, like, mental illness, um, which was kind of like, uh, rearing its head during my pregnancy. And so the memoir is like a sort of a dual double portrait, right? Both of Martin and myself as I'm kind of pregnant and coming to terms with like sort of a past that's haunting me and I'm trying to maybe leave behind or, or reckon with. Mm. That's actually really interesting because like one thing I was thinking about when I was like, what do I want to talk to her about is like, I feel like as young and aspiring writers, 
there's oftentimes like a certain amount of pressure that comes with writing and grappling with topics that are often misrepresented or like underrepresented to some aspect. And I was looking through some of your work and you often portray like these such topics like eating disorders or mental illnesses. So I was wondering like, do you have any advice for young writers who tend to shy away or fear for writing about quote unquote like heavy topics? I would think that is the material that, you know, if that's immaterial you're drawn toward for whatever reason, drawn to for whatever reason, whether it's personal experience like yourself or something that you know intimately because of a friend or a family member's experience that, it, that you're also involved in, I don't think you should shy away from that. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in writing what's hard and taking risks in your writing um, and, and, you know, risking scaring yourself a little bit with what you say, risking embarrassing yourself, risking exposing yourself. Um, and I think, you know, what I would recommend is, is just when you are approaching those topics, I think what can be hard about them is the sort of, uh, like legacy of, of like quote unquote bad writing that exists around those topics. Like we can all think of the like really lame eating disorder poem or the really lame like depression poem where the emotion expressed or the feeling expressed like is uh, um, not considered, like where craft is forsaken for just the expression mm -hmm. of emotion, right? And that's not as exciting to me. And, and like cliches about those topics are pretty tough, right? Um, but I think if you're honest about your experience, again, whether it's firsthand or secondhand, like, and you try to create something new and original in your presentation of that, that experience, I think it's only useful um, and only, it only offers this kind of greater way of understanding those topics, of understanding yourself. And I think we, we always need new ways of, um, of thinking about and, and, and talking about like mental health issues. So yeah, that's kind of a generic answer. I'm sorry. No, 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 no that makes sense, actually. Um, I was also like, this doesn't really have a lot to do with the interview, but like I was looking through some of your interviews about um, the last novel that you wrote, and you were talking about how you wanted to avoid romanticizing like eating disorders. Um, and I think I really related to that because I feel like when I write, my own perspective is incredibly self-deprecating and slightly problematic to some extent. So I always try to like avoid drawing too much from my own personal experiences. But what you said makes sense about balancing like that, that scale that there is. Um, and so another thing I was talking about with a lot of young writers that I feel like it's a very common problem is that most young writers like start off writing because they're drawn to it as like a form of, you know, expression or even like a form of escape. And then there's often like this cycle of disillusionment that comes when you're trying to like create like a living or creating a business or creating a name around your writing. So what advice would you give on balancing adhering to like an audience and adhering to those types of demands while also like stay, staying true to like yourself and what you view as writing? You have to, that's a good question. I mean, you really, and I think it's different. The answer is probably like, know, so like trait sounding, but like know yourself, like know what your uh, capacity for engaging with an audience is. Are you a writer that like, wants to build a platform on social media? Or are you attracted to like being a writer that has a degree of privacy in their life and has some sort of, you know, has some distance from that? Um, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to go about it. You know, like I personally, like I can tell you in my own experience, I got rid of social, like all forms of social media a few years ago. Um, I, I, like just kind of felt like there were too many times that I, like you mentioned at the start of our call, like, you know, just that feeling of feeling like scattered result from like 
scrolling through the news. Like I had too many occasions where from scrolling through like Twitter or Facebook or something like that, I had, I felt that scrambled feeling, you know, and I had like many other voices and too many concerns and too many comparisons in my mind. And I just felt like, un- you know, unproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no regrets about that. And like my agent has no problem with me not being on social media and like, you know, none of the publishers that I've worked with have had problems with that. So I think that you, um, you know, like, again, you just have to kind of know yourself. Some people like really thrive on being part of that conversation, reaching out, being like really active um, and building a a brand and doing that kind of like self-marketing. But it it can work, but it also doesn't have to be the only thing that Mm -hmm. you do. So um, I would say, again, just sort of like be, be real with yourself, you know, like just because it's the default thing that your favorite authors are on Twitter or Instagram or something like that, if that doesn't feel comfortable for you, or if it feels like you have those times that I'm like, I described where you feel like frazzled or like not great after scrolling through those like feeds, maybe, maybe think about what that, what, what engaging in that way is doing or not doing for you. But I think, I guess, most importantly, it's like, I, I really believe like your work comes first, mm. right? Your practice comes first. Everything else is secondary because if you don't, if you don't prioritize your work and, and that can be like the writing you're doing, the reading you're doing that goes toward the writing you're doing, the sort of like aimless, empty time, right? Where mm. everything's integrating and like you're sort of waiting for or like, kind of like communing with whatever inspiration feels like for you, you know, that takes like downtime, you know? And so if you're always like trying to be on, you kind of lose a little of that. So I think focusing on the work first is really crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had another question on how your approach to writing changed over time, but I think you slightly answered that. Um, But I feel like kind of taking the interview backwards, um, can you talk a little bit about yourself, like, and your writing journey? Like, how did you start writing? What made you become a writer? What does writing mean to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I was a kid who always liked, like, liked us to, to, uh, tame a word. I was like, uh, I adored reading. Um, and like reading was um, absolutely a way that like, I felt like I could like single myself out, you know, like reading the uh, reading a book too, too big for my age level was like a huge accomplishment for me always like reading Little Women when I was seven years old. Felt very proud of that. Um, and so I was always really passionate about reading. And I liked writing when we wrote in like reading class or, you know, English class. <clears throat> but it was in, it was really in eighth grade, um, my last year in middle school, there was a contest sponsored by Lake Forest Academy, um, which was, you know, a private school kind of like in the vicinity of my, my um, middle school. And it was open to like, I think everyone, all kids in Illinois. Um, And it was a poetry contest. And like out of nowhere, I wrote this like five page poem about, I was like dealing with the kind of very beginning stages of anorexia at the time. And I wrote this like five page poem that I still sort of have no understanding of like where the poem came from. Like, it's not like a poem I would have read in English class. It's like, like the the stanzas were like, you know, all over the page. Like the lines were broken up. There was a lot of like cesura and enjambment. I was like, I'm, I think about that and I wonder like, how did that come out, you know? But anyhow, I wrote this poem and I submitted it to the contest and it was a finalist or something. And so I got to go to this like awards dinner, it felt very exciting. And a poet that I still read today, Maureen Seaton, was the judge, and you know, she spoke about the poem. And it was like an event that really made me feel like, wow, I'm good at this. Like beyond like my English class, beyond my my school, like this was recognized. And it truly, Abla, at that point, I started thinking like, okay, I'm a, I'm going to be a writer. And I 
throughout high school, like worked on my literary magazine and wrote all the time and took creative writing classes. Um, and then I went to Knox College where I could major in creative writing specifically because I wanted to major in creative writing. Um, and, and from there I went straight, I had a very sort of like academic creative writing career, right? Like after Knox College, um, I went to Wash U in St. Louis and did an MFA in fiction writing. And I've always been the sort of writer who like when I'm doing one kind of writing, I like when I have some kind of writing that I've like contracted myself to do or like signed up to do in any way, I, I like start looking for a different kind of writing to be doing on the side. Like I like to cheat on my, my main project. So at Wash U, when I was there as a fiction writer, I kind of found myself writing prose poetry and Sestinas. And when I finished that MFA, I, I thought, what am I gonna do? Um, like an MFA is great for the time. Um, it affords you to study your writing and to you know, hang out with other writers and learn from other writers, but you don't necessarily feel that like, I think I finished my MFA when I was like 24. I didn't feel like I was ready for like, like what is the career? There's not like a career, you know? I was like, okay, I'm a writer. Uh, that's like, that's one thing. Um, I didn't know what to do next. And so I got another MFA um, <laughs> at UMass Amherst. I was really close to um, Phillips Exeter actually, and sometimes took day trips to that area. Um, and at UMass Amherst, I, I studied poetry. And while I was doing that, I kind of found myself doing a lot of like freelance nonfiction writing because again, like, of course I can't work on the thing that I think I'm working on um, exclusively. So I was doing a lot of freelance nonfiction writing. Um, and I guess along the way, you know, I'm submitting to literary magazines and publi I published like four chat books. Um, and then in 2016, um, I got a job teaching in an MFA program in Los Angeles at Mount St. Mary's University. And at that time, um, like right around that time, my agent was going out with my first novel. Mm -hmm. um, he sold that. And then kind of in the years uh, afterwards, like I published a couple books of poetry um, and, and have just kind of continued being a writer, I think, who works in you know, three genres. Like I write fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction. Yeah. Um, I don't know if in equal measure, but pretty close. I mean, at this point, like I have, I have like forthcoming publications in all three genres, um, like forthcoming booking publications and I guess forthcoming like journal publications. So it's important to me to, I guess I've become a writer who really values that sort of variety in mm -hmm. her, her like creative practice and her her expression. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, no, no. That was. I feel like everyone has such a different experience in how they write and how they go about going about their writing career. I guess. Um, one thing I was interested in is if you could do something differently, not necessarily as a teenager or a child, but even as like a young adult in your like early twenties, that could make you a better writer what would it be? If you have something, if you don't have something, that's fine as well. Okay, this is gonna sound, was it, I do have something. Um, okay. And that something is, and not just because we were talking about like mental illness and stuff like that, but, but like, I think about this a lot. Like, I wish I could go back and like not weigh myself so much and mm. not have so many days that were ruined by like me being like, oh, wow, like I'm so angry at myself because of my weight today, because it doesn't matter mm -hmm. <laughs> at all. Like, and nothing changes about your life because of your weight actually, really. Um, like you're still going to, like nothing, I often think about this, like how how so, so many things that we are so attached to and we care so much about, like they actually don't make any difference on like the things that really matter. And like, I think writing, and the art we make is like something that really matters. So I would definitely um, try to like break that habit because so many, I can think of, 
I mean, so many days, so many years of my life were just like very colored by like how much like self-hate existed on the scale mm-hmm. and it's not useful. Like I wish I had those, those hours and days and months back because I probably could have been more open to, um, I could have been like more engaged with my work. I could have mm-hmm. been like more focused on reading. Um, and I'm like, I think I'm a fairly productive writer. Like people often tell me like, you're productive. Like I'm impressed by your productivity or whatever, but like being real and knowing myself, like I probably could have been more productive and I could have given of myself in a greater way than just like, you know, bowing down to the scale or whatever. Yeah. That's, I think in society, there's always this conception of like, oh, like, you know, to create something beautiful or to create something interesting, you have to go through something tragic. So people are like, oh, like, I wouldn't change it because, like, I created something, I made art out of it. But I think the idea that if you actually, like, took care of yourself, you could focus more effort and time on your writing is a really interesting and important one. Um, Also... Oh, just like a fun question. If you had to describe what writing means to you in one or two phrases, what would you say? Um, it's kind of a hard one. I don't know what I would say. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah, it's like the hardest one. Um, I feel like everything I'm going to say is like sort of cheesy, but <laughs> like I think like I really believe like writing and the work we do with writing is um, like the only thing you really leave behind other than like your relationships. Like mm-hmm. I think beyond like any sort of status or jobs or money like I think your writing and your commitment to your writing and what you learn by like developing a committed practice you know like having a devotion to your writing Mm -hmm. is like as valuable to me as like my closest relationships so um I think, I guess maybe in a word or a phrase, like writing is like devotion, writing is practice. Um, Mm -hmm. Writing is like seeking the, seeking the the kind of like perfection that's all around us that we don't have to like buy or sell to like access. It's this thing that you're able to um, create, like so powerful and we're so removed from that often, so. Yeah, something in there. Is that, that was well is, said. That was really well said. Okay. Um, you'll edit this, right? Yes. Don't worry. Don't. <laughs> you'll you'll come out looking very good. But um, one okay, I was reading through your poetry and your writing, and I noticed that you use such unique like imagery and word choice. Like it really stood out to me. So I was wondering, what is your approach to writing poetry in such like a singular linguistic style or prose? Like, does it just come naturally to you or is it something that you work on? Um, I don't work on it, actually. I mean, okay, so I do work on it, I suppose. <laughs> that, like, I have like my notebook here. Like if I flipped through it, I am like a compulsive writer down of, I'm a compulsive noter of sentences or lines or phrases or words from other people's writing. So when I'm reading, I'm always like collecting that stuff. And I collect language that is both like new to me or a language that is like just new to me in this moment. Like I wrote down the other day, lolloping, which is a word I've seen before, but I don't know if I've used it. And it just like was sitting in whatever I was reading there with three L's um, and a P and a G, right? And so I write down words. I write down like chancel, parochial, limousines in front of the sea. I write down all this stuff. <laughs> and then, like, I love the word limousine and I keep wanting to use it like prominently in a 
poem or a story or something like that. But anyhow, I write down all this stuff. And then when I'm, when, when I'm writing, whether it's poems or short stories, it's a little different with like kind of op-ed-y sort of essays, which are like, I have a different aim, but especially with like short stories and poems, I have my notebook with me. And so I'm kind of like, I'm as much drawn to um, in expressing this language and like invigorating this language as I am with like telling a story or like saying something I think I need to say in a poem. And it's, it's, it feels a little bit like collage, like in some ways mm -hmm. where I'm, you know, like I'm, if I'm stuck or if I'm at a pause, I'm like, okay, I want to, I'm like, I'll flip through my notebook and be like, oh, uh, silver hours. Okay. I wrote that down. Like, let's put, I don't know if I wrote that or I don't know if somebody else wrote that, but let's make like Ruby hours or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like a real, like, um, back and forth process between like me composing me, my note, me and my notebook, of course, the, the people I was reading. Um, and so I'm, att I'm attentive to that. Um, and it's like, it might be the sort of thing where I, I feel like as a writer, my, like, my, the thing I have to work on is, is stepping back from imagery or mm -hmm. like language like that, because I'm, I'm, I'm so like attracted to the like surprises in the dictionary that I would just like that, that could carry me through a lot, um, mm -hmm. as a reader, um, and as a writer. So I have to sort of like come back, you know, like come back to earth and be like, okay, she opened the door or <laughs> I felt sad or, you know, yeah. say those like, really straightforward things because those are harder for me to say than like, you know, the limousine and the Emerald Sea. Yeah. Yeah. Also a follow up question same thing do you have any like literary recommendations or like I was gonna ask for advice but you gave advice like you gave your approach anyways but like do you have any literary recommendations that would perhaps like help the reader think about word choice and imagery differently yeah so like the reader or the writer like the reader of the poem who is a writer the reader of the poem and the reader of any poem or the reader of like a me poem? Oh, the reader of a you poem too. Open any question. I mean, I think how to think about it differently. Um, I don't know if I do. I mean, Yeah, I don't know if I do. I think I, if I, sometimes with poems, like what I think is useful for readers to remember is that um, there are like many, many ways of making sense. Mm. In, and like the sense of, of uh, like meaning is is one kind of sense, the sense of like, denotation but then there's the sense of like you know sonic affinity so like words that like are friends with each other yeah. um and there's the sense of rhyme and I don't even necessarily mean like rhyme rhyme but like words that like belong together like mm -hmm. there's a sort of thematic rhyming yeah um, and so I guess it's kind of like relaxing around language mm -hmm. you know? like and being open to the ways that language and image um doesn't have to obey the like rules of content that we're yeah. used to language behaving in in a lot of our life. Mm. Do you have like any inspirations or any like pieces of work that you draw inspiration from when you write? Um, yeah, I find I find the short stories of Gary Lutz. Mm -hmm. um, Lutz is L-U-T-Z. Yeah. Like, they are treasures. Um, and I have to like dose them out carefully <laughs> to myself because I am like a chameleon kind of writer where I, if I start reading somebody, I get that person's style in like mm. inside me and I will find myself like 
writing in that style a lot. Yeah. And Gary Lutz is so singular and strange. Um, and he does things with language that are like gymnastic and yeah. uh, like he writes, I feel like he writes in a world there, there, where there's not gravity or something. Like everything is so <laughs> with what he can do with, with, with words. Um, you know, like people talk about like verbing nouns or stuff like that. And he yeah. takes that kind of action to like the nth degree. Um, so I really love Gary Lutz. Um, and then I really like, you know, I I also take a lot of, I feel like I take inspiration honestly from, from whatever I'm reading at the time, even if it's something I am not in love with, um, just because there are words that I wouldn't use or sentences that I wouldn't write in everything I read, right? So like, mm -hmm. There's always so much to be gained from, if you're reading good work, even if you don't love the good work. Yeah. Something there for you. Um, yeah. Um, kind of switching topics a little bit. Um, how, how do you know when to like stop editing your work? And are there any editing choices you've made that you regret now? Um, I think you know when to stop editing your work when you like lose the energy, when you lose the capacity to have new ideas around that work, right? Like, yeah. and that happens at different times for different things. Um, like sometimes I will like, sometimes I've, I've, written a story and kind of drafted it. I usually draft stories pretty quickly. So I'll like draft a story, share it with someone right away, like hoping that this time it's perfect. Just from, you know, like I think every writer maybe hopes that, right? That like this time, you just it came out perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'll like share it with somebody, I'll get some feedback, I'll maybe edit it, maybe I will like sit with that feedback. Um, and then I'll at some point, you know, like really thoroughly engage with like a revision or a rewrite. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll do that and I'll look at it and I'll look at it and I'll try to, you know, feel able to, you know, I always like tell my writing students like, revision is like reseeing, right? And I had a writing mm -hmm. teacher who would say, like, you think of, you want to think about revision as like, if you were going in through the house, if you were going into the house through the front door in your first draft, why not try going in through like the basement window or mm -hmm. maybe like scale the side of the house and like climb up on the roof and go into the chimney. Like you just decided to go in the front door because the front door was there like staring you in the face. So <laughs> there are lots of other like paths into, into the material. And sometimes I feel like that's a good gauge. Like, can you, do you have the, do you have the, like, the, the, you know, like ideas for another way in. Um, but anyhow, I, I get to a certain point where I feel like I can't even read it anymore. Like mm. where just kind of like blankly scrolling you're like I don't this is this is this and then I usually send it I send out work you know like and so submitting is like a real useful part of my writing process in that it helps me you know as soon as I send a story or a batch of poems off I'm not thinking about those things anymore mm -hmm. I have decided to myself I mean because there's nothing you can do at that point, you know, you said, all right, someone can consider these pieces as they are. Um, and so it would be uh, a boring torture to like, look at those pieces after they're already submitted and be like, oh no, they could be better. You like yeah. can't do that yourself, you know? So that's useful. And, and then like, if I have sent out work and I get like, you know, a handful of nice rejections or a handful of like, not nice rejections, just plain old rejections, like then that tells me maybe this isn't working, you know? Mm -hmm. And if I don't have new ideas for the piece, like if it's a poem, I'll like start messing around with the form and see like, okay, is this prose poem really a prose poem? Or is this like 
a poem in couplets, you know? And like, sometimes just like re um, engaging with the form helps me get back into that like generative process. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, but I think there are some things that like we really, I think it's fair that that not everything uh, like comes to fruition, you know, like I can think of a handful of stories that I've written over the last, you know, three or four years, long stories, 14 or 20 page stories that mm -hmm. I wrote, I worked on, I got annoyed with working on mm -hmm. and I didn't come back to, and maybe I'll come back to them someday. Like Lydia Davis, the writer Lydia Davis says, you should never throw anything out. And like, yeah. you'll see in her writing, like things from years and years ago come, come back and like take on new lives or get completely like reduced to tiny stories. Um, so I think that's useful and, and that can happen, but it's okay sometimes to, to throw something out. Like the, the painter I mentioned earlier, Agnes Martin, like for the first 20 years of her career as a painter, she would basically have a bonfire at the end of every year and burn <laughs> she didn't like. And she would say in interviews, like I painted for 20 years before I figured out who I was as a painter. Mm -hmm. And, and I think sometimes we're so impatient, you know, like we want this, like I said, we want the story that we wrote to be like, ready to go to the New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think your approach to writing has changed or is different due to the fact that you write poetry, fiction, and nonfiction? Yeah. Um, well, I think there are there are positives and negatives to working in multiple genres. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I envy people who are like novelists through and yeah. through, because if you have an idea, it's a novel. Like if you yeah. know you're a novelist, you don't write poems. Like maybe you like poems, maybe you read poems, but you don't write poems. Yeah, you don't have to think like should this should this container you know, should I put, should the container for this idea be a poem? Um, and similarly, you know, if you don't write creative nonfiction, if something happens in your life that is, is like worth writing about to you for some reason, you don't have to think, oh, should I write this? Like, should I, should I thinly veil these events in fiction or should I write, you know, a personal essay? Like it's always going to be fiction. So I sometimes envy that kind of like, um, like the foregone conclusion of what yeah. forms something like. But I think because I work in multiple genres, I, I feel, a, I feel in a good way, an obligation to be working all the time. Because if I'm not working on something long, like a novel or the memoir, I'm like, well, I could write a poem or a story. I always want to write a poem or a story. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I always think I could make something out of the material that I've accumulated. Like, you know, again, like going through my notebook, I'm like, well, there's certain, if I went through just like four pages, I'm sure I could write a poem out of like yeah. here and come up with something. And so I feel um, like a kind of industriousness, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. It, it's been granted to me because I work in all these different genres. Um, it also, I think an advantage is like, I feel like working in multiple genres, especially working in anything in creative nonfiction helps you like participate in a different kind of like cultural or literary conversation. So for me, you know, like your readership when you're a poet it's questionable, right? Like, that's maybe the nicest way to say it, if, unless you're like a super famous poet. Yeah. Um, and and my, my favorite poets are not super super famous like poets or, or like, um, you know, even the poets coming out from like the biggest, like the biggest indie presses or, or whatever, like yeah. they're, they're all over the place. And, and you just like know that as, as a poet. And that's great. Um, and like the same is true about some of my favorite fiction writers. Like they are not like Gary Lutz is not a household name. Yeah. <laughs> household is like 
experimental fiction writers. Um, <laughs> and like, that's a cool household, but you know, like you accept that. When you write creative nonfiction, and I think this is why I started like freelancing when I was um, at UMass uh, six years ago, like when you write creative nonfiction, you are able to participate in a bigger cultural conversation because yeah. you can write person, especially like with, with like online magazines and like online newspapers, you can write, you know, you have a much, much wider audience that you can reach. And there's something that's like really, um, there is something that is really gratifying about writing and knowing you're being read. Like mm -hmm. as much as, as much as I have like admiration and esteem for someone like Agnes Martin, who was able to live in relative isolation, just painting 500 paintings a year in New Mexico for like 40 years of her life, 35 years of her life, like just kind of doing that, racking up major awards, like yeah. having work shown all over the place in like the best museums in the world. There's, I, I, you know, like as much as I admire that, I also like feel like the ability to communicate and, and know you're communicating is like, it's, it is gratifying and so, mm -hmm. Um, like I have a piece coming out in the New York times tomorrow. It's terrifying in some ways because like, you know, you have a wide readership, but also it's like, well, that's really kind of amazing. Like mm. a lot of people will read that. Um, and whatever I'm saying in that piece maybe has the power, like maybe other people start thinking those things too. Not to sound like too, like power hungry you're like trying to mind control or something like that but just like you get to be part of a, a bigger conversation yeah definitely also I have a side question about Agnes Martin like while she was you know in her like self-isolation was she aware or like did she was she aware of like the accomplishments she was achieving outside or was it something she was yeah for sure I mean so she had like her her dealer her art dealer was like the biggest dealer in New York oh and okay so like she had really been again she was like she was grouped with people like Mark Rothko or Jackson Pollock mm -hmm. and then like in the 70s when there were like a lot of minimalist um like shows happening she was often grouped in those those um galleries and like so she knew mm -hmm. but she she did not, she wanted a simple way of living. And she lived in what seemed close to like, not poverty, but like Spartan conditions for yeah. her whole life. And she was a millionaire many times over. That's, that's so, that's like kind of mind boggling to think about, honestly, yeah. to like be aware of like, how like how much success I feel like you at that point your idea of what success is is just different from what society views as success so yeah she's fascinating I in you know like and her you her writing about art and inspiration like borrows a lot from Taoism um the sort of like in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot, like the that kind of like Zen philosophy was getting introduced mm. with the New York intellectual scene at that time. And so she was like, definitely drinking that Kool-Aid, you know? Yeah. And so writing is like really rooted in some of those philosophies, but it's, it's, it's very like um, refreshing in our, you know, in our world, which is focused on success and like yeah. progress and acquisition and content and audience and reach and growth yeah. and all these things she's like no that's not what an artist does you know and like she didn't go to New Mexico like a millionaire and like live in yeah. a palace and make art she like built her own house formed her own bricks oh <laughs> yeah like lived like a you know like a pioneer woman and slept oh. in her truck for four years while she was doing it. So That's like, incredible. Yeah, I, 
Anyhow, she's a rabbit hole for you to go down sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> They're all so beautiful and like stunning and only yeah. about your emotions. So um, anyhow, sorry, that's a digression. Yeah, it is, but I enjoyed it. Um, I think I I went through like the list of, oh, do you have any upcoming like or current literary projects you'd like to share that you're excited about or you're inspired by? Of my own or like other people's? Either works. <laughs> um, I, let's see, what am I excited about right now? You know, I'm currently, um, I'm currently in the first year of a PhD program in creative writing at University of Southern California. Um, and I am like studying creative nonfiction there. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a class that uh, Jeff Dyer is, read- uh, is teaching and it's focused on the novelist, essayist, art writer, filmmaker, uh, John Berger. And we're reading everything by John Berger. So this is like 50 books. Um, And Berger is somebody who like, you know, who wrote in every genre, in every form about art and culture, visual culture for like decades. And I'm really like in love with most of what he's writing um, or what most of what he wrote, he he died a few years ago, but um, I like the project of reading everything by somebody, you know, that's kind of, that's a cool thing. It's daunting, but then you feel like you've really like lived in someone's life for a little bit. So that, I don't know if anything else. Oh, I just, I just reread Chelsea Menace's, um first two books of poetry, Bad, Bad and Zirconia. Um, they were reissued by Fence, Book, Fence Books as a double edition a little bit ago. And um, Chelsea Minnis is like a writer who was part of the girl-esque movement in the like early 2000s. And there's just something so decadent and a little nihilistic and funny about her writing that uh, feels, feels like a great luxury during these like pandemic times. So I recommend her. All right. Final question. Um, Do you have any advice, any words you'd like to share for young writers or poets? (laughs) It's kind of a hard question, but. (laughs) Yes, I think. Like, let's see, if you know, right, like, if you know writing is your calling, like, if you, if you, like, sorry, one second, it's fine, no, thank you, sorry, my brother just barged into my room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you know writing is your calling, or if it feels like the thing you want to do, you should you should give everything to it and you should, you know, it's never too early to start treating it seriously. And writing is one of those things that, you know, like there's not a cap on how much you can serve it. Um, There's not a cap on, there's not a limit to how much you can give to that pursuit, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you are, a young writer, like you can be writing all the time, even when, if you're not in a writing class and, and that maybe seems obvious, but I don't know if I've like fully understood the importance of having a writing practice the way, like as a kid, I played clarinet and I mm-hmm. had like a practice chart and like had to practice a certain amount of time on the clarinet every day, or as a runner, like on cross country, you know, I would run every day for a couple hours a day and we'd have practice. And like, I don't know if I fully understood that writing was like that, mm-hmm. but I, I believe now a hundred percent that writing is like that, that you give to it every day, the same way you practice anything else that you practice and just sort of the sooner you can 
create that for yourself in a daily way, the better off you'll be because like your practice, no matter what else happens, like your practice stays with you, you know, like if you've done something like a, a sport and you stop, you know, you stop that sport years later, you could decide to pick it up again or pick up like the idea of practicing something again. And, and it would still be available to you. Like you would have the muscle memory of that. Mm-hmm. And I think like a writing practice is similar. So don't feel like you need to wait for an assignment or an occasion to, to be the writer that like, to start being the writer you want to be. That was very well said. Um, oh, I actually forgot to ask you about this. Do you, I know you were the co-founder of Tammy. Would you like to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about Tammy. Um, Tammy's a literary journal and chapbook press. I founded it with Tyler Dorholt and Thomas Cook in 2009. We were all MFA students at the time um, in our early 20s. Um, and we wanted, it was at this, it was in 2009, like I said, and, and at that moment, there were tons of online magazines sort of booming, you know, like it was very, it was, it was like a conversation, like, did you want to publish in someplace, like, was online okay? Like, or it was print better, like it was, that was a part of the conversation, now it's like, you know, yeah. kind of quaint. Um, but we really wanted to start a print journal because so many places were moving online or like the new places were online and it felt important to us to create objects. Um, and we didn't really know, I don't think when we started that we were going to really have, um, like an interest in experimental prose, but, but that's really like what we've, I think how we've developed, how our identity has evolved over time. Um, so yeah, we, we um, have been publishing, we, we are in the process of putting out our 11th issue um, and our fifth series of chapbooks. We started, we started publishing chapbooks a few years ago. Um, and I, you know, as you know, being involved with the Qualia Review, like working on a literary magazine, working on a publication in any kind of capacity, like really gives you insight into um, not just like a different, you know, different dimension of the writing world, but also like it gives you insight into like how much work there is out there and like how much, like how much expression is happening all the time. And I know that maybe seems obvious, but like it, it's humbling to know that like people are sharing their their work um, and they're writing with you. So I think being involved in a literary journal has been so important for, for me. Um, again, being part of like this greater community and it feels like a kind of service um, mm-hmm. right, that we can offer to other writers. Like all of us have published in literary magazines have benefited from from editors who give of themselves by working at literary magazines, often, you know, in volunteer capacities. Um, and so it's it feels like a way to be a part again of this larger community um, in in a small way, but a way. Um, yeah. All right. I'm sorry. I like literally said last question like numerous times, but that is all. Thank you so much for coming. If you have anything else, like feel free to speak. But other than that, that's the end of the interview.